Yes, so um, with, uh, with baby dedication, with communion, these other things going on, um, I have gotten the, uh, the pulpit here at a quarter until. Uh, now, any of you who are regular tapestry attenders know that we stay on an hour for services, and uh, so you may be hoping I cut it down to 15 minutes today. Um, I think I'm going the other way. We we're going to blow the timeline. I'm just going to talk as long as I want. Uh, since we're going to miss it. So uh, buckle in. We may be here a while. Uh, we'll put some extra coffee on uh, for you guys too. Uh, just kidding. Uh. <laughs> She's got it. Yeah. So uh, if this is your uh, first time with us in this series that we've started, we're in week three of this series. Uh, I have a very specific goal in mind. Uh, for this series. And if you've missed the first two weeks, you can go back. There's several places you can find that uh, on our Facebook page. You can find links to YouTube. All the videos are up, the podcast on our website. Um, you can find these. I encourage you to go back and uh, listen to the last couple of weeks because my goal uh, over the next uh, several weeks still is to get you to read your Bible, uh, which shouldn't be that difficult of a goal uh, for a pastor who is sitting in a church full of people who are here uh, in church willingly. Um, but uh, you'd be surprised, and maybe you're not surprised, <laughs> how many Christians actually don't read their Bible. Uh, how many Christians, the only Bible they get is whatever their pastor tells them on a Sunday morning. And then lets him explain what that should mean to them and how that affects their life. And then they go out and that's the extent of their Bible experience. You'd be amazed how many Christians have never read it. Never, maybe a verse here and there, but have never read it. Which is crazy to me because I feel like, as we talked uh, last week, so much of our lives are impacted by the Bible. Our conscience is impacted by the Bible. What we believe is right and wrong, the way when we feel guilt is impacted by it. And all of these things uh, are impacted by the Bible. And so it only makes sense to me. You owe it to yourself to read it. It's worth reading. It really is. So we've gone over the last couple of weeks. Uh, the first week I talked about just how personal the Bible can be. As David gave us uh, the idea of when he read the scriptures, he said, it was as if God was teaching me directly. That's how personal the scriptures can be. And then last week we did something that I think for a lot of people might have been something brand new, is we actually looked at physically in the, the books and the way they're put into the Bible, how the Bible's put together. Uh, because a lot of people get lost because they start reading at the beginning and Genesis makes sense and then Exodus continues the storyline. Then uh, Leviticus, it all starts falling apart. By the time you get the numbers, you got no idea what's going on. And then if you make it through, you kind of get to weird guys at the end of the Old Testament talking about who knows what they're talking about. And you get lost and you give up. So we looked last week, uh, there's a card uh, that is sitting back on the table that shows the books of the Old Testament that are in line right down the middle of the card, that are the timeline of the story. And then all of the other books are on the outside because those are extra writings. Those are journals that people kept. Those are prophecies that were given about the timeline. And so we have those things over top and pointing to the book of the events that those were going on. And the reason it's important is because it shows the depth of the scriptures. That it's not just some story. We have the story, 
And then we've got writings from people in the story talking about how they felt, how they interacted with God, their prayers while those events were going on. And it adds so much depth. Same thing when you get to the New Testament. You've got four accounts of the life of Jesus in the Gospels. Then you have Acts, which is the the story of the church. And then you have a whole bunch of letters that were written by the people in the story about the churches that were being created in Acts. And it gives so much depth to the things that are going on. And then you've got Revelation at the end, which as we talked about last week, maybe things that are in the future... Maybe things that have already happened. Maybe just John was out on the island too long and wrote a lot of crazy stuff. Not for sure, but it's in there in the end. And so there's so much more depth when you understand how the Bible is constructed. Now, the reason that so many people walk away from their faith as an adult, uh, because I've talked to a lot of people who have, um, is because they know Bible stories, but they don't know the story of the Bible. Right? Their understanding of what the Bible is never progressed past uh, coloring pages and Sunday school versions and bedtime stories. But this is a big deal because understanding how we got the Bible is nearly as important, not as important, but is nearly as important as what is in the Bible. Because the backstory sheds so much light on the story in the Bible itself. Now, part of the challenge for all of us is that the way that we got our first Bible is very different from the way we all got the Bible, right? When we got our first Bible, it already had chapters in it and verses. It was footnoted. There was maps in the back, right? It was probably wrapped up in some nice clear plastic to keep it nice until you opened it. If you were super fancy, you got your name on the cover embossed in gold letters down on the front. Like that's how we got our Bible. Now, if I were to hand out three by five cards to everybody, and I was to have you um, write down where you think the Bible came from. If I got those cards back and I started reading through them, I bet for as many of there are of you in the room, I would have that many different ideas as to where the Bible came from. Right? There would be that. And there are all sorts of crazy ideas out there about where the Bible came from. But if you have no idea where the Bible came from, how we got it, how it got put together, then it is easy to dismiss it as just some weird book full of crazy ideas if you don't know where it came from. Now, just to get us started, um, one thing, and you'd be surprised how many people don't know this, Jesus did not write any of the Bible. Now, that's news to some Christians, but it's true. Jesus didn't write any of it, but, but Jesus is the reason that we have it. He didn't write it, but he's the reason that we have it. The story of the Bible begins not with Genesis, even though that's the first book that everybody opens up to, but it begins with Jesus being discovered to be alive after his crucifixion. That is where the Bible begins because without that resurrection, the Bible would not exist. We wouldn't have it. Right? The people who wrote the New Testament, the people who sacrificed their lives to get the message of the story beyond just Jerusalem, to get it out of the first century, they didn't do it because of what Jesus taught, even though Jesus taught amazing things. 
They didn't do it because of the miracles that he performed. Even though when he did them, they were so amazing, they got written down and we have record of them thousands of years later. They didn't do it because those people who followed Jesus was a who's who of the Jewish culture. That's not why they sacrificed their lives to get the message of Jesus out of the first century. Because there would have been nothing to write about if there wasn't the resurrection. And the reason is, is because Jesus made too many claims about himself. And the fact that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took a dead body of Jesus down off the cross and put into Joseph's tomb proved in that moment that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. That he wasn't. He was not who his followers hoped he was. But when that tomb was found empty, those who just hours before had fled in fear for their lives, who assumed that it was over, those people immediately began to flood the streets of Jerusalem to begin to talk about what they had seen in a resurrected Jesus. And the church began in the very city where the crucifixion took place. And so the events around a resurrected Jesus were extremely important to the first followers, the followers of Jesus in the first century, which is why we ended up with four different manuscripts, four different versions of the story of Jesus's life, which is a phenomenal fact. Because listen, you really have no idea how many ancient events in history that you take for granted actually happened and there is zero written documented evidence of those things happening. Zero written record of them. In fact, for a lot of them, what we have is authors who are referencing documents that reference other documents that have disintegrated over time and are no longer in existence. That's what a lot of our historical understanding comes from. But we have four surviving manuscripts, versions of the life of Jesus who, if we're honest with ourselves, without the resurrection, is the life of nobody. Of a Jewish carpenter who claimed to be something and then was killed. We have that. A Jewish wannabe Messiah from an insignificant town in what at the time was an insignificant nation. And we have these accounts for one reason and one reason only. The resurrection. If it wasn't for that, we would not have it. But it's important to understand, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written, there was still no Bible. Those were just people writing their experiences and they were just a document that existed. There were just four accounts of the life of Jesus that the early church would then write copies of and they held those in high regard. And they would risk their life to protect those written accounts. So after the resurrection, Paul and others, they, they left Judea. They began to tell all of the Gentiles in the surrounding areas, which are all the non-Jewish people, about Jesus. And the biggest struggle for Gentiles, 
non-Jewish people who were interested and wanted to embrace Jesus after they heard the story and were like, wow, this is amazing, who wanted to embrace him as their savior was this. The thing that was the obstacle to them was the idea, um, giving up the idea that, that they and everybody around them had grown up with. And that was the idea that there was more than one God. You get outside of the Jewish people into all of the Gentile cultures, that was the assumption. There was more than one God. Now, this is not a big deal to us because we're not polytheists, right? But this would be the equivalent of you being told something by somebody and then you just ceasing to believe in God if you believe in him. Like that would probably take a pretty dramatic thing if you believe in God to just, oh, okay, yeah, I don't anymore. Right? Or if you don't believe in God, just deciding, oh, I've heard this thing. Now I believe. That's a big deal. But in the ancient world, if someone wanted to become a Christian, they were expected to embrace this notion of there only being one God, which at the time, it's hard for us to understand, but at the time, that was unimaginable for somebody to do. That's just not how the culture worked. And it's also important to note that in that time, people didn't have to leave one religion to join another. That's how it works now. We're like, oh, if you want to be a part of this, you've got to leave this. That's not how it worked back then. Every religion had their own God. Every family had their own gods, right? And when you moved, you put your gods into a bag and you took your gods with you to wherever you went right? And sometimes you might pick up other gods from other cultures. And you didn't have to get rid of the gods that you already had. You didn't have to get rid of the gods you already believed in. You could just add the new god to it. That's the way that it worked. And then Christianity comes along and says, nope, 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 nope. That's not how it's going to work. You have to give up all of your gods to embrace the one God, In fact, in the first and second century, Christians, people who, even though they didn't have that title yet, people who were following Jesus were thought to be atheists because of this whole idea that they were saying you had to stop believing in all of these other gods. They weren't just wanting to add a new one. They were saying, no, none of yours exist. There is but one. So this was an obstacle for most Gentiles who wanted to embrace Christianity. The idea of one God was a very novel, very new idea. Now, this is a really important part of our journey as we're talking about how the Bible was created and the story of the Bible. Because when Gentiles became enamored with um, one particular Jew, Jesus, When they heard the story and they're like, wow, we need more of that. They became enamored, not just with Jesus, but then they became enamored with the, what we call the Old Testament, which was the ancient Jewish texts. Now this wasn't the case before Jesus. Gentiles were not at all interested in Jewish scriptures before they became interested in Jesus. And there were good reasons why. There were reasons why. Uh, First of all, uh, Jewish people just tended to keep to themselves. There wasn't a whole lot of trying to convince other people to believe their thing. Second, uh, Jewish people ate different foods. And Gentiles found a lot of the foods to be not great. Gentiles did weird things like refusing to work on the Sabbath, even though it may appear to hurt productivity. Jewish people refused to intermarry with non-Jewish people. 
And so there was little interest by any Gentiles in the ancient Jewish scriptures until the story of Jesus began to spread. And when they discovered the law and the prophets, because it wasn't called the Old Testament at that point, it was called the law and the prophets. Uh, When they discovered that the law and the prophets was the backstory of this person called Jesus, they became interested. And this becomes a problem for them later on um, because they were interested in finding Jesus in the texts of the Jewish people because Jesus was Jewish. Right? And so, to their amazement, what they discovered was this. They discovered that the Jews, whose religion was older than the religion of the Romans, who was old, their religion was older than the religion of the Greeks, had always, from the very beginning, believed in the idea of just one God. Now, here's something interesting. Um, Christians in the first and the second century, they were persecuted by the Romans because they would not worship the gods, the Greek gods, or declare that Caesar was divine. And so they were persecuted. But the Jews had never worshiped the Greek gods and had never declared that Caesar was divine. So the question that you should ask is this, and this is one that most people probably never thought of. Why, why did the Romans give a pass to the Jews about not believing in any of the gods and, and, and believing this idea of just one God. Why did they give them a pass, right? But then when the Christians came around talking about Jesus, all of a sudden they didn't get the same pass. Why do you think that was? And here's why. It's because Romans honored ancient things. If something was ancient, if it had been around for a long time, there was a certain level of honor that that brought with it. Right? And they knew that the Jewish faith was older than the stories of Romulus and Remus. They knew that it was older than the pantheon of the Greek gods that were worshipped. They knew that it was older than any of their religions. And so the Jewish faith and the Jewish people sort of got a pass in that area. So when the Gentile scholars... Right, began exploring Jewish scriptures. They were shocked to discover that the oldest religion that anybody knew about had recognized from the very beginning that there was only one God. And the implications of that to them were staggering. Because the implication was, since ancient times, every single culture that has created religion had it wrong. But the Jews had it right from the beginning. And they opened up that very first scroll in the Jewish scriptures. And here's what they found right at the beginning. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And you've heard this so many times. This is not a new verse to you. You've heard it argued so many times, heard its truth and authorship disputed so many times. But do not miss the original context of the very first sentence That was shocking to the ancient world because what they expected to find was what they found in every other religion in the world and every other creation story in the world. They expected to find gods, not God singular. That's what they expected. The word Genesis uh, in Greek is a word that means origin. 
Um, Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, in the 19th and 20th century, uh, archaeological finds uh, created doubt regarding the origin of the Genesis account of creation. And here, here's where those doubts came from. Because they found Egyptian, uh, Sumerian, Canaanite, uh, Babylonian uh, creation texts that were all their versions of how creation happened. How did the world come to be? And they were very similar to the Hebrew text. They were very similar to the story in Genesis. And they were so similar that the assumption was that the Hebrew text was actually borrowed from other ancient creation stories. And if you go and read them, they do sound similar to Genesis. So why, the question would be asked, why then is the Hebrew text any more valid than any of those other texts that sound similar? They have similar story. But what you need to know is that that view, even though that still gets talked about in some circles today, has pretty much been abandoned in scholarship. Uh, Not only does Genesis not borrow from other creation myths, but it stands in contrast to them. Uh, Genesis is a worldview unto itself that does not match up with any of the other creation stories. And it was an ahead of its time worldview. In fact, the modern scientific community wouldn't even begin to catch up to the idea that Genesis is putting out until 1927, which was not that long ago. Uh, And that was when a Belgian priest first suggested the theory that would come to be known as the Big Bang Theory. That is, that the universe had a beginning. And since the time of Aristotle, all the way back in the 4th century BC, everybody thought that the universe had just always existed. That it just was. That it hadn't come from anywhere. It just always was. Matter just was. And and Einstein embraced this idea that this Belgian priest had come up with, right? He embraced it. No, everything, everything has a beginning. And so, you know, there must be a beginning. But in 1964, something else happened that really moved this idea along with the discovery of cosmic background radiation. Aren't you guys glad you came to church this morning? I mean, we're getting in, we're getting into it. Cosmic background radiation, right? That was discovered in 1964. And the view that the universe has always existed was pretty much abandoned when they found that background radiation. Because now scientists mostly agree that in a trillion trillionth of a second, the universe expanded from something smaller than a pebble into an astronomical scope, right? Or, or, in the words of Genesis, in the beginning. In the beginning. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. It does, all of it. So the debate today is not, did the universe have a beginning? That's not debated anymore. The debate today is around, is it a purposeful, uh, personal intentional cause, right? Now back to Genesis. The significance of what comes next in Genesis is lost on us. Um, And the reason why is because the point Moses is trying to make is already assumed by us. But it wasn't a point that was assumed by everyone when Moses was writing. 
He is essentially making a case that no longer needs made because his argument ultimately succeeded and we agreed to the case, right? But Moses was writing to an ancient group of people at the time who all they knew was slavery and the pantheon of the Greek gods. That was what they knew. So Moses is trying to help them narrow down their focus and become believers in the one true God. And in Genesis, listen, this is really important. In Genesis, he is not trying to explain how God created the heavens and the earth. This is where so so many of us get mixed up. Moses was making the point, not how he created the heavens and earth, but he was making the point that he created the heavens and the earth. That was Moses's goal (laughs) with the creation story in Genesis, right? Not the gods created, God created. And so he says, in the beginning, God created. Not not, not Egypt's uh, Amun-Re, not Babylon's Merduk. They didn't create. To which, I mean, if you don't know the story of Merduk, whew, what a story that is. You owe it to yourself to go read that. He, he, essentially, essentially, Merduk, in that, in that creation myth, he rides into this epic battle, straddling two steeds, one under each foot. Right? Can you, I mean, just already, it's awesome, right? <laughs> or he rides in, an epic steed, two steeds. And, and, if that's not awesome enough, here's what his steeds were named. They were named Slaughterer and Merciless. Those were the names of the steeds that Meridu rode into this ancient battle on. And he stride, you know, stands astride these two powerful stallions. And after defeating the goddess uh, Timat by shooting an arrow into her mouth and through her throat... I'm telling you, it's an awesome story. Uh, He splits her body into two. See, you guys are glad you're in here today. This is an awesome story. He splits her body in two. And with her upper half, he creates the heavens. And with her lower half, he creates the earth. I mean, come on. How cool would Sunday school have been for Babylonian children? (laughs) Imagine that, if we were still in the felt board series, imagine putting that story up on the felt board, ripping her in half and creating the heavens and the earth, right? (laughs) But in Genesis, we find something extraordinarily different. Extraordinarily different, right? It's not even close. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis is nothing like the Egyptian creation myth. It's nothing like the Canaanite creation myth, the Babylonian creation myth, where in all of those creation stories, all of those, the gods are at odds with themselves. That's what's going on in those stories. They are at war with each other. And they create other gods out of body parts and fluids. That's what's going on in these other creation story myths. And this brings us to the next epic ahead of its time statement that we find. Because in the Babylonian uh, creation myth, uh, it takes five books in that story. Five books before mankind is created. So there's a whole lot going on, right? And, And in those books, and once we get in those stories, mankind was created for the entire purpose of serving lazy gods. In all of the other creation myth stories, that was the point of people. 
to serve the lazy gods. So after becoming the king of the gods, Marduk says the following. He says, I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. Savage man I will create. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. In all of the other creation stories, mankind is an afterthought that is to serve nothing but to lighten the load of the gods. Now, Genesis is completely different. Completely different. Because of the way the ancient people embraced these views of the gods, individuals had no rights. Women had no status. There was no intrinsic value in anyone in those stories, in those cultures, because those were the stories that they understood. The violence and injustice of the gods justified the violence and injustice of human leaders towards the people that were under them. They were not immoral for their violence that they poured out. The kings were essentially acting like their fathers in the heavens. That's what was going on within that culture. Then you come to Genesis and it provides a stark parallel, a stark contrast to which there are no parallels. The oldest of the ancient religions, a concept that the human race continues to struggle with to this day. Here it is, drop down to verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Mankind is the pinnacle, not the afterthought in the Genesis creation story, which means the dignity of every man, woman, and child is established at the very beginning. At the very beginning. And this was unheard of in that culture. Unheard of. And none of the religions or the pantheons of the God that would follow would establish this kind of thought. But there's more, because what comes next is even more unimaginable. And it would have been 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 1,500, 2,000 years later. He says, let us make mankind in our image so that they may rule over. What do you think they're going to rule over? Not worship, not make idols out of, not deify, it says, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all of the wild animals. In the very beginning, God told the Jewish people, you will make no idols. You will have no other gods before me because there are no other gods. And I'm telling you, uh, in contrast to the pantheon of the gods that they had just es- escaped from, right? God says, look, you will not worship nature Nature's awesome, but nature points to me. You won't worship it. You will rule nature. You are stewards of this world. And that, listen, that is an idea that we are wrestling with to this very day. And I'm not gonna get too far on this tangent, but one of the things that really bothers me about the way so many Christians approach their faith is that so many Christians are so focused on what's gonna happen in the sweet by and by after we die. All I gotta do is hang on here and suffer through. And then that's what I'm really going through that they forget that everything Jesus did and taught was for us here now. 
And that includes good stewards of the earth that we have been given. And it drives me crazy when I see Christians justifying destruction and trashing of the earth because it's not about the earth. It's just about the one day sweet by and by that I'm going to get to when I die. Drives me nuts. We have been set as stewards over the earth. And listen, every single pagan culture established after the Jewish people worshiped nature worshiped the elements of nature, the animals of nature, the mixture of animals in nature. But from the very beginning, God established something different. He said this, so God created mankind in his own image, unthinkable. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Jesus was the first to elevate the status of women. That didn't happen in cultures until Jesus came along and began to do it. But in the very beginning, God gave women the dignity that the world is still trying to catch up to and put into practice today. Completely different from every other version of creation. But it was there in the very beginning. Now, our problem with this is that we get distracted. Um, We read Genesis and we think, okay, well, Moses is explaining how God created the world. But come on, let's be honest. How can anyone, how can anyone, especially in ancient ancient times, be able to just understand how God created the world? His point wasn't how God created the world. It was that God created the world. And we could all focus on the timing and the order of creation account. And we can also twist it up on, no, it had to happen exactly that way. And then we don't know what to say when somebody's like, well, yeah, but in Genesis 2, there's another version of the creation story. And it's different than Genesis chapter 1. We're like, oh, what are we going to do? The point wasn't that's exactly how it happened. The point was God is the one that did it. Now, Moses then dropped that bomb at the very beginning. And he introduced a radically different, unparalleled worldview. And this would be the foundation, ultimately, of the golden rule. And the golden rule is not reflected in nature. If you watch nature happen, it doesn't operate under do unto others as you would have them do unto you. (laughs) And if I'm honest and I look around and just observe people, I'm not sure how much that rule is practiced amongst people, let alone nature. But the idea was introduced in the very beginning. You are not a means to an end. You're not. You are to rule nature, not worship nature. Jesus, or God said, look, I'm going to make you as close to me as possible in my image, which means, which means, and this is, we don't want to think about this, but it means that every single person that you come into contact is someone who was made in the image of their creator, which puts a value on them. Now, I'm not gonna lie. There's a lot of people in your life and in my life that it's hard to see the value from our human point of view. But they have that value to God. And so, as such, be careful as to how you treat them. Now, all of this, in the very beginning, a God who gives us the ability to choose, right? A God who respects our choice, completely in contrast to all of the other gods 
that existed in myth. And then God does the most ungodly thing you could possibly imagine. He, he, here's, here's, here's what he does. He goes to work to reverse the consequences of mankind's decision to choose against him. What God does that? Every other God, when mankind didn't, uh, didn't uh, act the right way, didn't choose the right way, didn't serve them in the right way, the repercussion was lightning bolts and death. God of the scriptures <laughs> says, no, you chose against me, fine. It is now my mission to reconcile you back to me. I mean, that's the most ungodlike thing I've ever seen. Then Genesis 1 gives the meta-narrative of our lives. Um, the ultimate context for human existence, right? A monotheistic worldview, a worldview that answers life's most important questions, the why questions that everybody at one point or another asks. Why is there something instead of nothing? Why are you here? Why do you matter? And listen, this is absolutely incredible that all of this exists at the very beginning. Now, back to the first century Gentiles, who if they wanted to choose Jesus, they had to get rid of all of their gods and accept this one God. They realized that the Jewish people had it right all along, which of course only fueled their interests in the Jewish scriptures. And they moved very quickly to adopt the Jewish scriptures as their Christian scripture, to put them together and to make them one. And thus the stage was set for the inclusion of all of the Jewish scriptures into the Christian Bible. But that inclusion would not be without its struggles. So join in with me next week. <laughs> as we talk about those struggles of including the Jewish scriptures into what we know as the Bible. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I thank you for just the depth of what the words are, the scriptures that we hold, that Lord, to us, if we're honest, most of the time is not more than a book just sitting on a shelf in our house but just the depth, the meaning, the implications of the words that are recorded in those writings. God, if we were able to even begin to wrap our minds around it, God, I'm convinced we would have a much stronger desire to actually read it for ourselves, to spend time going through the words and allowing you to teach us personally through the words of the scripture. God, it is such an incredible book that I don't know if even in a six-week series I'll be able to do justice as to how amazing it is. And I thank you that you have made it to where we can be holding it in our hands today. Lord, as we go throughout this week, I pray that you have this idea on our mind that maybe, maybe, maybe there's a whole lot more depth and meaning and significance to the scriptures than the way we've been treating it. 
and cause, to be, cause us to begin to have a greater depth of love and understanding and appetite for the scriptures because they have influenced everything around us. We owe it to ourselves to read it. Lord, thank you for your mercy and for your grace. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, It was a pleasure to have you all. Have a great week and uh, either be here next week or tune in in one of the ways for the rest of the series as we talk about the Bible and what it is. Yeah.